0: America is the greatest country the world has ever known. We are a nation of immigrants, pioneers, and patriots. Together, we create the bold, beautiful fabric that is America. We are the city upon the hill, a beacon to the world. America is the land of freedom and unlimited opportunity. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. We, the people, have stories to share, stories to uplift and inspire. You will feel proud, humbled, and blessed to call yourself an American. Jason Schechterley had only been on the job as a Phoenix police officer for 14 months when the back of his patrol car was slammed into by a taxi cab driver traveling 115 miles per hour during an epileptic seizure. Jason's vehicle exploded into flames. As a result, 43% of Jason's body was burned, including severe fourth-degree burns over his face, head, and neck. Jason spent over two months in a medically induced coma and was blind for nine months as skin grafts were placed over his eyes. And yet Jason is not angry about this day. Jason is grateful. Jason is grateful that after his squad car came to a stop, there was a fire truck right in front of him. Jason is grateful that it was him and not a mother with small children who received the brunt of this taxi cab's collision. Burning Shield Jason's American Story. Welcome to this episode of We the People Our American Story. My guest today is Jason, and Jason and I work together to write it out phonetically so I wouldn't kill it. Jason Schechter Lee, right, Jason? Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Before we get started, I want to loosen this up a little bit, and we are going to just take a minute or so and play one of those this or that. You know what that is, right?
1: Uh, well, I'm going to find out.
0: Okay. Just to kind of loosen this up a little bit. Okay. All right. Morning or evening? Evening. Chocolate ice cream or vanilla? Vanilla. DC or Marvel? This is an important question to me.
1: <laughs> oh boy, that's a lot of <laughs> pressure. I, yeah, I'm more into real, real life heroes. Based on things I've heard, I'll have to go Marvel.
0: Okay, all right, I'll give it to you, but um, I at least challenge you to watch Captain America. <laughs>
1: okay, all right. I'll, I'll try and do that.
0: <laughs> okay, beach or mountains? Oh, beach. Sweet or salty? Ooh. <laughs> salty. Okay, and last question, Hawaii or Europe? Uh, Hawaii. All right. Okay. Well, we've loosened up a little bit there. I feel like I know who you are now and that I need to introduce you to Marvel. I know <laughs> that <laughs> because I'm a huge Marvel fan. I enjoy watching fake heroes and I enjoy talking to real heroes. So <laughs> a little bit of both there. That makes sense. All right, Jason, will you please start with your beginning? Maybe a little bit about growing up?
1: Yeah, of course. I was born and raised in phoenix arizona 1972 so i am 48 years old just have a uh, had a great childhood great parents great schools played sports just the the great american childhood that everybody probably hopes for and i look back on it with nothing but fond memories and i'm still here in phoenix so i must uh, i must really love
0: it you like the heat
1: yeah i i, I don't really want snow i i Seen it a couple times <laughs> due to our fine military. They made sure to send a Phoenix boy to a snowy place. And that taught me uh, a definite love for the desert.
0: Oh, that's funny. Why did you join the military? Is this something that you wanted to do as a younger child or what happened?
1: No, I mean, as a younger child, I always, I often thought about people in uniform and being a police officer, but growing up, even through high school. It never really crossed my mind to join the military. And I got a golf scholarship when I graduated high school. Oh, So I was going to pursue that. But that also coincided with the first desert storm, the the brief one, in 1991. And all the men in my family had served in the military, including one of my biggest heroes in life my grandfather he served for 26 years and he was in world war ii korea wow. vietnam and he was always the, the happiest most kind funny person i'd ever know and i really looked up to him i really loved my grandfather and it was just a kind of a joining of all these forces at the time, being 18 years old and really not wanting to go to school anymore. (laughs) I was not a good student as far as I got good grades. I didn't want to be there. So I just decided, you know what, you're meant to serve. And so I joined the Air Force.
0: I've learned a lot with this podcast. I've learned with the Marines, it's called boot camp. With the Army, it's called basic training. I just lumped it all together. What do you call it in the Air Force?
1: Basic training.
0: Okay. Where did you go to basic training?
1: In the beautiful city of San Antonio.
0: Okay. And how did you find basic?
1: I found it to be, well, I mean, at the time, I still laugh, uh, you know, when I talk to like Marines or Army, I'm like, you guys are crazy. I, I, I could never have done that and how intense it is. The Air Force, you know, some people might have thought basic training was hard. It's really not. And it was only six weeks at the time. I mean, you could do anything. For six weeks, you run a little bit, a few push-ups, a few sit-ups, get your head shaved like everybody else, (laughs) learn some discipline. But it it was not difficult at the time.
0: The Air Force from uh, the other branches kind of has a reputation as being a little bit cushy, don't you?
1: Well, that's part of why I joined it, because I'm (laughs) a lot smarter than (laughs) The knuckleheads that join the Marines. And
0: so it shouldn't be so much that it's cushy. It's just the Air Force people are smarter because they understand.
1: Right? That's, that's what I'm saying. I wanted better food, better dorm rooms. and <laughs> it, Unless you're a pilot. Yeah. Places you go are usually not as extreme. And for me, it was a little more of a normal. I'm sure the other branches are, but what I love about the Air Force is it's an exact replica of of civilian life. Everything that you have in civilian life, the Air Force has. Exactly everything. Every career, every type of living environment, playing sports, just everything. So it was was perfect.
0: What were your roles in the military? What did you do?
1: I wasn't the smartest person joining the military because I was naive and I knew that I wanted to be a cop outside of the military when I got done. And so... I told the recruiter, I want to be a cop. And he probably smiled silently and thought, oh, no problem. Well, what I didn't know was there's two kinds of police in the Air Force. There is law enforcement, security police. Well, I found out after basic training, when I got to tech school, I found out I was security police. And I had to ask, well, what does that mean? And it basically means you're going to be guarding airplanes and nukes and air-based ground defense. And I just, it took quite a few hours of going, why did I do this? I was security police, which looking back at my age now, I definitely would have chosen a different career field that would have actually, you know, been like an extra technician or an accountant or worked (laughs) on something that would have been a little more productive.
0: How long was your enlistment? Uh, Four years. And did you get out after the four years then?
1: I actually got out before my four years, to be honest with you. Like, I did a couple of winters in North Dakota, which if anybody's been to North Dakota, it's so damn cold. You can't even believe <laughs> it. Um, wonderful place. The people are so kind. I loved it. And then I went to Korea for a year. And then I came back and I got the best assignment. I was at Eglin Air Force Base in Panhandle, Florida. I was playing golf, going to the beach.
0: It It is pretty cushy in the Air Force.
1: It was incredible until in June of 94, I got a call at nine o'clock at night saying, get all your stuff. You're going on a worldwide deployment. And they wouldn't even tell me where until I got on the airplane. And that was the moment I was like, time out. I joined the Air Force. I didn't join the Marines for the Army. (laughs) We don't do this kind of stuff. I thought they were joking. I thought it was a drill. And then I got on an airplane with, you know, my M16 and my 9 millimeter and all my gear, and we got off the runway, and that's when they said, you're going to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, for the uh, Haitian refugee crisis that was going on.
0: What year was this?
1: 1994. Okay. I went in June of 94, and had no idea when we were coming back. We finally did come back in late October uh, with only about a two-day notice. It was definitely an interesting experience and, and time to to be down there, the things that were going on. And I came back and I, I knew that I wasn't going to re-enlist. And at the time, President Clinton, he was downsizing the military, I think. And anybody who wasn't re could get out early. And after getting back from Cuba, I was a little bit exhausted and ready to go home.
0: You raised your hand.
1: It, yeah. So... <laughs> I walked in and I said, uh, I'm not re enlisting. And they said, Well, if you want, you can get out 60 days from now. And I said, Give me a pen. And so I actually got out. I was supposed to get out in May of 95, and I got out in January of 95.
0: Well, I'm curious, being down in Haiti. No,
1: Cuba. I was like, Cuba.
0: Excuse me. Cuba. Sorry. That was my fault there. Cuba. Being down in Cuba and seeing how those people live and the struggles that they were going through. Did that give you any appreciation for America?
1: It made a huge impact on mean, probably one of the more defining moments because there was a lot that went into it. You know, we, when I first went down there, we didn't know a whole lot. My squad, 44 people was assigned to a camp that had been built, you know, tents and cops and, We would provide food, provide security. We would play soccer with the kids, do things like that. And we needed interpreters to help us communicate. And we started to learn the stories of why these people were leaving their homes and their country and how they did it, how they got on boats that sometimes were vehicles that literally were made to float. And they would just go out into the ocean hoping that somebody would save them, and the willingness to leave their homeland for a better life. I mean, I was only 22 years old, so it had a big impression on me that I realized what gratitude truly meant and how much I loved being an American, how much I appreciated serving my country and trying to help these people. And then it also changed to where back then, if you go back prior to the summer of 94, Cubans, were fleeing Cuba and they were just making the short trip across the water to Miami. Well, President Clinton also repealed that ability. So when they would go out into the water, they would get basically captured and rerouted down to Guantanamo. So now we had camps for the Cuban refugees and the Haitian refugees. And when they found out that they were in competition, with each other to get to America. They started fighting us and people were getting hurt. It was pretty scary every day and to go in there and these riots would start. And again, I, I got a just a new appreciation for how serious it was to them and how bad they wanted to live in the country that I was fortunate enough to have been born and raised.
0: People are not leaving the United States in vehicles. And getting in the ocean and headed over to Cuba, are they?
1: No, but there's a whole lot of them I wish it would.
0: <laughs> I agree with you there, Jason. Well, you wanted to be a cop. Why? What was that in you? I think just
1: serving again. I was never going to be a nine to five office person wearing a shirt and tie. I wasn't going to have three or four degrees. I didn't care about making a million dollars. I just wanted to serve and especially, you know, a city like Phoenix, it's a big city. Uh, We're now the fifth largest in the country, but also all the fun and romantic things that you see on TV. I wanted to take bad guys to jail. I wanted to answer these calls. I wanted to, Get into these crazy situations. And that's what I I mean when I was younger, you know, I don't really want to do that now, but when I was younger, I I did. So I I became a cop for a lot of reasons, but actually, I tried and failed several times. It's a very difficult job as it should be to get. I mean, you have to go through a lot of background checks and take a lot of tests. And I failed a few times. And then, you know, I, Met my beautiful wife, Susie, and we got married. We had a couple of kids. And I ended up with a wonderful job working for one of our power companies. I was making a lot of money. We had a great life. And now I'm 26 years old. So I had been out of the military for four years and really thought my life was set. And then on March 26th of 1999, a police officer named Mark accident was shot and killed in the line of duty. And that moment completely changed me back to, instead of it's what I want to do, it's what I have to do. It's a call.
0: That's really interesting to me that you men and women in the military and first responders, most of us, if that kind of situation arises and a police officer is killed, or like our Marines over in Afghanistan, most of us are like, nope, mm I think it takes a different breed, which I find is so remarkable and that those of you who do that don't understand that. Like you don't see it as something that is above and beyond what most of us would do because most of us be like, nope, that's too dangerous. I'm not gonna do that. Absolutely not. And yet that propelled you forward.
1: Well, I think that's part of, what's wonderful about the people who do it is the desire to help and take care of the people who don't want to. There's not a disrespect. They're like, oh, you couldn't do this job. You don't want to do this job. No, that's wonderful to have a group of people who want to be the ones that will go into the fight or go into the fire and let people like you sleep in peace at night.
0: Well, Jason, I'll tell you right now, I couldn't do that job. I wouldn't do that job. (laughs) I'll be brutally honest with you.
1: It's a wonderful job, but I could have never been a firefighter. I used to watch those guys on calls. I'm like, y'all are crazy. So much love and respect, but then all the way up through our special forces to like the Navy SEALs, for example, like we talked about off air. They are superhuman to me. Yeah, uh, And that's probably why I don't watch the fake Hollywood stuff because I'm so enamored with the real deal. I could never have done, I couldn't have made it through the training, let alone do what they do with a heartbeat at 72 per minute. And I am just so thankful and enamored and in love with uh, all the men and women who, who can do those jobs.
0: When you went through... Police academy—is that what you call it? Yes. When you went through it this time, did you get through it?
1: Well, it was the only time I went through. When I say I tried to fail the first few times, it was through the testing process. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So when I went to the academy, yeah, I noticed, and I still notice to this day. I still teach at our academy. I still notice that people who were in the military have a much easier time because the structure and the discipline comes a little more natural along with the physical requirements, but also the police academy, you're learning things that you are in there that you want to learn. It's not like you're taking trigonometry or chemistry class. You're learning criminal law. You're learning defensive tactics. You're learning how to do high-risk vehicle stops. You're learning stuff that is fun and interesting and you know is going to save your life and other people's lives. So it's very easy to not only take it serious, but enjoy the process. I loved every minute.
0: How did your wife feel about you becoming a police officer? Did it concern her? Was she, go for it, Jason. How was that?
1: I think it was a mixture of both. It was, she was very supportive of my goals, my dreams, but also, yeah, very nervous at first. And even I was nervous when I graduated the academy and all of a sudden it becomes real. You know, there's no more whistles at the end of a scenario. There's no more fake guns or uh, role-playing actors that you're putting handcuffs on. It's real. And it's an immense power and responsibility that you have when you're wearing a badge and carrying a gun. I mean, taking people's freedoms away, taking children out of their homes, entering people's businesses. This is a serious thing that needs to be done with honor and integrity and humility. So I was really nervous, but yeah, I think she was pretty nervous just because she knew what could happen.
0: Do you remember your first day?
1: I remember my first day very, very well.
0: Yes. How were the nerves?
1: Extremely high, I would say, but the right kind of anxiety, the kind of anxiety that when you channel it correctly, you're very focused. And Once I got in there, once I got into my first briefing and once I met some of the other people on my squad and also you have a field training officer so you know they are there. That's not an easy job to get to become a field training officer. So you know that they are very good. They're gonna protect you. They're gonna teach you how to do things. Baby steps each and every day. Once or you get diverted into something big and needs to be taken care of and you gotta kinda learn quickly But yeah, the nerves, they were high, but but they settled down and it did not take me long to just breathe in everything, learn what the dispatchers were saying, how they would talk, uh, figuring out addresses, how to get to places quickly, and also just knowing the laws.
0: Were you on patrol for your entire career? Were you in the car? Let me rephrase that. Until your accident, were you in the patrol car? I was on patrol. Okay. There are lots of things that you see that are horrendous. How did you? I mean, do you remember the first time that you saw something that was really disturbing? And what was your reaction?
1: I do. I remember the first time I saw violent death. Uh, I mean, I had seen people who had passed away asleep or something like that. But the first time I saw a truly violent death, it was late at night, I was working the overnight shift and uh as a call of a hit and run car pedestrian. And so, you know, right away, it's not gonna be good because a car hitting a human body is just, I mean, that should register with you that it's probably gonna look disturbing. And I was very close to the scene uh, when the call came out. And so I got there. 30 seconds and there was a man who was unrecognizable uh-huh. because he had been run over completely and you know you have to go up and try to render aid, check for a pulse you're waiting on the fire department because they're the ones who i was not a paramedic i was not trained in that way but i i do remember very well the first time i saw that and you know when you're in the moment you you have a job to do and but it's once the fire department showed up and then we're blocking off streets, and you know, you're going to call out the detectives because it's a vehicular homicide, basically. So, detectives have to come work the scene. So, you're blocking off streets and you're doing your job. But there does come time very quickly within 5, 10, 15 minutes where you have time to think about how fragile life is, how quickly it can end. And how permanent that is, and then that person has a family, somewhere that is going to get a knock on the door tonight. A lot of things. Uh, I was always a person that thought about the entire set of circumstances versus just, oh, what's well, what's the next call I got to go to? So it, that that was pretty tough.
0: Did you ever have fear? You had to have fear when you on some of these calls, right?
1: You have to. Well, I think you have to. If you don't you're probably going to be in a lot more danger because you'll make mistakes and you'll do something stupid. I think fear uh, can be very healthy. And uh, we all have fear. Well, you, you have to, and you can't have courage without having fear. So I think it's you know inherent in all of us. It's very natural, but I think it's helpful.
0: It just completely confounds me how, as a police officer, that you men and women can go to these places where you don't know what to expect and not want to go into a dark corner and hide. (laughs) Because that's exactly what I would do. I would find it. I mean, everybody's running away. You know, it goes back to that whole thing with when everybody else is running away, you and other first responders are running towards the danger.
1: Yeah, I think that goes back to when you're in the moment when you know adrenaline is without a doubt the most powerful chemical in our bodies. When you are trained to do this job and you trust that training and you have confidence in your abilities, when you're in those moments, there's no place you'd rather be. And it does go back to those old cliches of not on my watch. This is my precinct. This is my area of responsibility, and you are not going to hurt anybody while I'm on duty tonight. It's a beautiful feeling.
0: Can you take us back then to the day of your traumatic injury, maybe how many years you had been serving at that point, and what happened, but share only what you feel comfortable with sharing.
1: That's what I share all the time all across the country with my full-time job. I know, so, and I'm
0: blessed to have you here. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm happy to,
1: to share. Yeah, it was I was only on duty for 14 months and ironically, it was March 26th of 2001, which was the two year anniversary of Mark Acton being killed. It was the same day and uh, I was on patrol that day. It was started at three o'clock in the afternoon. I was supposed to work until one o'clock in the morning, work 10 hour shifts and I went through a pretty boring day, Uh, not, not a lot going on. And about 11.30 that night, uh, so I was about an hour and a half from getting off ship and going home. Uh, 11.30, an uh, emergency call came out of a found dead body in an apartment with a lot of blood. And it was, actually wasn't in my area of responsibility, but the officers in that area were busy. So the dispatcher actually had to put the call out twice and I wasn't doing anything. So I grabbed the radio and I said, I'll head that direction. On my way to that call, I was driving lights and siren and I came to a red light at one of our freeway overpasses. And you still have to come to a complete stop when you have your lights and siren up. You can't just go through a red light. You gotta make sure that people are gonna yield to your vehicle. And it only takes a second and a half to clear an intersection. Just as I was gonna proceed, I was hit from behind by a taxi cab. The driver was having an epileptic seizure at the time, and he was doing 115 miles an hour.
0: Were you in the car by yourself? Do you go in pairs or single? I,
1: I, I was by myself.
0: Okay. What happened?
1: Uh, my car burst into flames. It traveled 270 feet through the intersection. I was completely unconscious at that, you know, that violent collision. I was knocked out. And on the other side of the intersection, I mean, you can't even put into words how many miracles, twists of fate, the timing. But I came to rest fifty feet from a fire truck.
0: That was out.
1: They were at, they were in the intersection. Wow!
0: What is the first thing that you remember then?
1: I woke up in the hospital two and a half months
0: later. Two and a half months later, they put you in an induced coma.
1: They did. And that's what I woke up to is my wife. Thankfully, I was not alone. She was in the room with me. And yeah, when she told me the the date, it's hard to process that it's June 12th. Because I did think when I woke up, you know, what's, I was thinking a lot of things. What's going on? What happened? Why can't I see? Why can't I move? I knew I was in the hospital. And then. When my wife told me what the day was and just a thousand thoughts start going through your mind i missed our wedding anniversary i miss my son zane's third birthday how can two and a half months be gone what what is going on it's, it's just it, it was an impossible thing to to comprehend
0: were you entirely wrapped then from head to toe
1: i think so but i don't i don't know
0: when you woke up What's your first thought? Do you even remember that? Like did did you remember what had happened?
1: No, I remember being at work, but I did not remember anything about the accent. And so I had to slowly start piecing things together, and that was, you know, that was very difficult, uh, as you can imagine, because some things are so surreal you don't even really believe them or understand them I mean I'm sitting there consciously trying to open my eyes wondering why I can't why I can't see but I wasn't able to register well you're blind you're blind I was
0: okay I'm like what wait a minute <laughs>
1: <laughs> no my eyes were covered with skin grafts.
0: okay <laughs> Okay, I was confused there because I tried to do a little bit of research and I'm like, wait, I've been talking to you and you've been looking right at my here. <laughs> wow, how scary. What were the extent of your injuries?
1: Uh, I had burns to 43% of my body, my neck, head, and face uh, being the worst. There are fourth degree burns. Thankfully, my bulletproof vest really saved my life with uh, my chest and torso not being burned. And uh, my shoulders, to my hands were third degree. I ended up having half my fingers amputated, uh, and, a, just a ton of surgeries time. You can save my hands, save my life. Uh, obviously my entire appearance was removed right down to the last layers of muscle into the bone Ugh. and nobody survives fourth degree burns. So
0: I'm sorry, Jason, what parts were the fourth degree burns Your from, face, the neck up. from the, oh my goodness. When it's fourth degree, you don't feel that though, right?
1: <laughs> no, everything's gone. Yeah. Everything's gone. Wow.
0: Do you remember the first time you saw yourself?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, they, they opened the skin grafts on my eyes, uh, nine months after the accident.
0: Nine months, you couldn't see for nine months?
1: Right. And without a doubt, the most claustrophobic, terrifying experience ever is being black. It was so, so difficult. And when they opened those skin grafts, I remember waking up from that surgery. Think of being underwater and trying to see something at the other end of the pool. That's how blurry, because my corneas were very damaged by the fire, So I couldn't see through the scarring of what was on my corneas. And those can never be taken away. So, but just to see light and colors again, I, I can't even explain what an incredible blessing that was. And I was able to get really close to a mirror and see little parts at a time and understand what I look like. But I had also taken the time in those months to ask a lot of questions to a lot of different people and try to get a mental picture and understanding of what I look like.
0: Were you still prepared though?
1: No. No, not at all. Not with this kind of disfigurement.
0: With those nine months, without being able to see, how were you feeling mentally? How did you deal with that?
1: You know, there was obviously uh, dark days in both
0: mentally and physically,
1: physically. But I was so set up for this event in the sense that my wife was there and got me home. I, find, I went home in August, so I was in the hospital for five months and she was right there to take care of me. I had two kids and being a father is everything to me. So even though it was very difficult on them, I mean, very difficult on my children, but selfishly just to listen to their voices and to be in the same house as them. I had my friends, the department. I had so many people who did not give up on me, so I wasn't gonna give up on them. So there was a lot of bad days, but then there was also a lot of good days in the sense that when I went to therapy, I'd come home and feel a little bit stronger. I learned how to eat real food again my wife had gone out and bought me my favorite dog that I always wanted, a Golden Retriever,
0: who was born on the day of my accident. No coincidences, right?
1: I, I guess not. So I had, you know, this Golden Retriever at home. And so it was, I mean, when I look back on it now, 20 years later, I don't remember the bad stuff. Like I, ha- I would have to actively think about that i only remember the good i remember when we learned to laugh again i remember things like my daughter who's now a 27 year old doctor with a child of her own i'm a grandparent now and i remember this little girl asking me a math question and letting me try to help her with her homework i remember people coming to visit i remember having a surgery done and how the doctors were not only happy with what they had accomplished, but still fighting for me. I I just remember all the good stuff. It's it's, bad fades away.
0: Did you keep your ears? Nope. Okay.
1: This ear is completely gone. And this one is uh, just a little bit, but my hearing, thankfully, I think because I was blind, I relied heavily on my hearing. So it stayed intact.
0: I had the opportunity to, uh, Spend some time with Shiloh Harris. Do you know that name? No. He was in the Army, I think. I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember if it was Army or Marines. Anyway, he's one of the guests that I had and he was blown up and he is 85% scar tissue. How much scar tissue do you have? 43%. That's not bad then. I mean, it's not good, but it's not bad when you're considering things.
1: (laughs) No, compared to 85, that's. Yeah. Because a lot of my, like, To not have my chest, my stomach, my back, my legs, my feet, none of that is burned or scarred. So when you get into the 80% or above, it's devastating.
0: Yeah. And he has these magnetic ears that he wears because his ears are gone.
1: I tried that for a couple (laughs) of days.
0: He has a really funny story about being um, somewhere in a store and trying on a cowboy hat and they kind of. (laughs) <laughs> they came off and were bouncing around the store.
1: Yeah, that happened to me. And that's when I was <laughs> like, I'm putting these in the garage. And-
0: one of the things, too, that he talked about is he remembers things when he was in his coma. Do you remember anything? He tells me that it was a nightmarish experience and that he remembers.
1: No, I, mine was medically induced. And one of the drugs they give you, it's called Versed, And mm-hmm. it's a, like an amnesia drug. I do have stories of, sometimes I would get very agitated and they couldn't calm me down no matter how much medicine they give me. So they'd call my wife, oh. she was in the hospital and lay next to me and I would calm down. I had a nurse who at night, I guess did not like, I'm a country music person. And they left the radio on for me all the time. And he would come in and change the station and my blood pressure would go through the roof.
0: <laughs> Can I see your hands and what function do you have with your hands? What as far um, as digits?
1: I mean, I've learned to use my hands just as well as I, I used to, but they had actually sew them into my abdomen for five weeks to give them a good blood supply and save them. But I lost both fingers on this hand and my thumb and they took what was left of my index finger and made me a thumb and a lot of therapy, and there's nothing more painful than an injury to your hands. Nothing. I've had so many pins inserted into the bones and uh, surgeries, therapy. This hand doesn't open or close. It's kind of stuck, but I had my right index finger amputated so that I could get it out of the way and learn how to hold a gun again and shoot it. All I can do is pull, pull the trigger. So it was things like that.
0: How were your kids the first time they saw you? Uh, my
1: daughter was, you know, she was seven at the time. She was intimidated and a little bit scared, but so full of compassion. Mm. He, he understood how severe the injuries were. My son Zane, he was only three. He, he actually turned three when I was in a coma. So, you know, he had a very difficult time. He would, he would say, You're not my dad. Oh. He would cry and you know but kids are resilient it took a few months but once he figured it out and now he's the most beautiful soul god ever put on this earth and we have a very special bond so they went through their tough times but again kids are resilient and they they are better off because of this when i see them today
0: are you in pain on a daily basis
1: i am in absolutely no pain
0: ever oh wow how blessed are you that's great. When you're home recovering, do you pretty much think my career's over?
1: I did spend some time thinking I've lost the job that I love so much, but then it did not take very long to get determined to go back to work. Even when I had everybody around me saying, Jason, you, there's no way you're going back to work. I remember when I called my doctor, I said, hey, I need a, a script written for a bulletproof vest because you can get a replacement vest, they're very expensive. I remember my doctor saying, what are you talking about? You're not going back to work. I said, yes, I am. And uh, I did, I went back to work 18 months after the accident.
0: And what was your role then?
1: I started out as a public information officer, getting information out to the media and the public. And I've become detective certified part of the accident. And Phoenix Police Department is incredible with how they support their people and My dream was to be a homicide detective. They gave me uh, the opportunity.
0: Are you a homicide detective now? No, I
1: retired. I did it for three years.
0: You're retired now. Okay. What do you do now then? What do you do to fill your day, Jason?
1: Well, up until last week, I spent most of my time being a dad, but just got our youngest off to college. So uh, now we are empty nesters. Oh,
0: I dread that day.
1: Uh, Yeah, you should, because (laughs) I had no idea how truly difficult it it is.
0: My Um, youngest is 13. We still have a few years, but.
1: Yeah, we don't don't blink.
0: (laughs) I know. (laughs) But
1: but I I, I travel. uh, I mean, obviously, life has changed a lot because of COVID. But uh, before COVID in 2019, as an example, I did 75 speeches across the country. So I travel a lot. And I do public speaking and I love it.
0: PTSD isn't talked about a lot. Do you suffer from any of that?
1: No, and you know, I don't even like when people use the, the D on the end because I don't think it's a disorder. I think
0: PTS.
1: It, it's either PTS or PTSI. It's a true injury, and anybody can get it because of anything. I think for me, another one of my blessings there are a lot of police officers in this world who are injured in the line of duty because somebody targeted them somebody pointed a gun at them and said you're not going home tonight the guy who hit me was not after me he was not targeting me he was having an epileptic seizure and he paid a heavy price i mean he went to jail he went to prison for 10 years for what he did really Yes, because there was so much he had caused a lot of other accidents, wasn't taking his medication, he did break the law. But I never had to deal with the anger of somebody intentionally hurting me. I chose to look at it as if it wasn't me, he would have made it to the next intersection and he could have hit a woman with her kids or somebody's grandparents, it would have killed. So I was in the right place at the right time. And that's just how I chose to look at it. And then also what really helped me and why I don't have PTS is because I think that we should be accountable for everything that happens in our life, good and bad. And I'm the one who chose to be a police officer. I chose to answer up for that call but I had no reason to answer. I chose the direction that I traveled. I chose to get out of the military after only four years. It was because of me that I didn't become a cop until I did. So I made choices over a 10 year period that put me at that intersection. It was not some random, tragic, Oh, poor me moment in time. I am accountable for everything that has happened in my life and where I'm at today. And having that accountability lays a pretty strong foundation to not question God or be angry or to wonder why me or anything like that. So I've been able to not have that along with the continued every thing since the accident has just gotten better. We had a third child 18 months after the accident. That child would not even exist. He's the one that just went to college and he's playing college baseball. His life shouldn't even exist. So when I look at him, I'm just filled with gratitude because I wouldn't change anything.
0: Wow. Police are getting a bad rap right now. What do you want people to know about our police force?
1: Obviously, as a former police officer, I have a multi-layered view of it. I mean, I I definitely think that, unfortunately, a lot of police officers do do things that, you know, in the world we live in now with everybody being able to videotape with their cell phones and, and things like that. And, you know, I'll be the first person to say that video of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd was probably the worst thing I've ever seen. And it's nine minutes long. And it just doesn't stop. I've said on my podcast plenty of times, I would have been judge, jury, and executioner for Derek Chauvin if you give me the chance. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a cop who takes it serious and does it with honor and integrity. With that being said, when you think about how many calls for service police go on, the traffic stops, millions across the country every year. You can't possibly take away from all the good that is being done all the lives that are being saved and made better and in our world right now the media doesn't show the countless interactions that are positive where officers are taking care of children in their moment of need where officers are helping somebody in the midst of a life-changing event and Regardless of what you hear on TV, when you call 911, nobody cares about your age, your race, your gender, or how much money you have in the bank. They are going to come, and they are going to help you. Sometimes things escalate. Sometimes things get violent, but 99.9% of the time, that's by the choices made by the criminal. Cops do not show up on scene wanting to hurt and kill somebody and the statistics prove that so i could really care less anymore about what the media is saying and how they pick and choose one bad incident and ignore a hundred thousand good ones and we talked earlier i if we could go back to 1994 and what the haitians did to leave their country every single politician in our country and i mean every single one needs to get on a boat and get the hell out of america
0: I agree with that, Jason. I wouldn't keep one. I agree. Yeah. Where can we find your book, Burning Shield?
1: It's on Amazon, uh, Barnes and & Noble, and then my website is burningshield.com. Pretty easy to find. it has been out since 2014. I'm very proud of it.
0: And you said you have a podcast?
1: I do. You- I do a, a podcast every Wednesday called Badge Boys, and I do it with another retired police officer. He, 30 years with Phoenix Police Department, and just an incredible, incredible individual. He's gone through a lot in his career and life, and he's a beautiful soul. So we have a lot of fun, talk about a lot of things that I can't talk about in everyday life. That's my that's my hour every week to vent and, and say what I think needs to be said, but it airs on uh, most of the you know, Spotify, Apple, there's a link on my website. I think this week will be episode 133.
0: Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. You've been doing it for a while. I'm going to check that out. Where else can we find you on social media then? You have your website?
1: Yeah, mostly uh, I'm very active on Instagram.
0: Okay. And what are you under Instagram?
1: It's my last name, Shechterly then underscore J-A-S.
0: All right, Jason. What does America mean to you?
1: America means freedom. It means the beauty to live of my own free will, make my own choices every day, and to be prosperous, to be just able to do whatever you are willing to work toward doing. And I'm also very much into the history of it. I think we can continue learning from the past. We can continue to get better like we have. And for someone like me to continue to honor my father's service in the military, my grandfather especially, and then to hope and want to make a better America for my kids. And now I have a grandchild. He's six weeks old.
0: Oh, my goodness. I
1: know that it's going to happen quick. He's going to be my age. I want America to be the beautiful place it should be.
0: Thank you for sharing your American story with us.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Now that you've heard Jason's episode, you want to know more about this amazing person. Well, you're in luck. Jason has a website, BurningShield.com, where you can also purchase his book, Burning Shield, also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Jason also has his own podcast called Badge Boys. Follow Jason on Instagram at S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R-L-E underscore J-A-S. Thank you for listening to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. We are about halfway through season number three, and I still have incredible people in the lineup. As I mentioned in a few previous episodes, you can really help this podcast out by leaving a review and a rating and sharing with friends and families. And through the month of October, if you share this podcast and tag We The People, Our American Story, you will be eligible for a drawing. I have Fabulous gifts that I'm still lining up with a few gifts from previous and future guests. Next week, my guest is former Navy SEAL Jeff Gum. See you on Friday.